Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of abridged talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today, we'll explore a country that most of us know very little about: East Timor. Sandwiched between Australia and Indonesia, it has vast, unexplored rainforest and unique jungle environment. Professor Henrik Kaiser from Victor Valley College in California has recently gave a talk to the Royal Geographical Society about his journey through East Timor's tropical forests. His talk was titled "East Timor: The Jungles and Snakes of Asia's Newest Country." I'm excited to tell you a little bit about the work that Mark and I have been doing in Southeast Asia, in particular in Timor Leste. That is a country that not everybody knows about. Certainly not where I come from. And when I tell people that this is where I do some of my research, they're asking, "Where is that? Is that even a country?" So sometimes when you're looking at you know the the maps, the big map, there are some small places that may go unnoticed, but they shouldn't go unnoticed because there is a lot of diversity and a lot of excitement there when it comes to nature. And this, of course, despite the fact that, and I want to read this to you, that from a herpetological point of view, Timor is one of the most disappointing places that one can visit. Considering its size and its position in the tropics, there is probably no other island so barren in reptilian and batrachian life. So said Malcolm Smith, who was actually quite famous because he published these volumes on reptiles and amphibians. Um, on the fauna of British India. Now we didn't necessarily go there because we wanted to prove Professor Smith wrong, but it was an opportunity where the country had opened up for research after a rather long and uh, really sad history—25 years of Indonesian occupation, a lot of people um, who who died because of it. There was a Civil war, resistance, and so this was basically a place that was new. The, the the map had not been filled in in terms of the diversity of different kinds of organisms, and herpetology is the thing that I am mostly interested in. And so, as a consequence, this was a great place to go and、uh, work with students, both American and local students. To make an impact and really show people in the country what exciting things they have on offer. And so, when I tell you about the work in East Timor, it's not only about the snakes or only about the reptiles. It's also a little bit about the approach. The idea that through the herpetological surveys, where new discoveries are very likely, we could actually have a broader impact. We could not only introduce my students and the students from the national university locally to biological research, how to do it, how to do field work, but we could also really make a, some inroads into international understanding. Together is how we all grow as a, a, a people, and this is the kind of thing that I really enjoy. I, I have a very international upbringing. I, you heard my degrees from Canada. I'm German originally. I've lived in Barbados. I've lived in the U.S. I've lived in the Philippines. I've lived in many different places, and it's always the feeling that together we can achieve more. And of course, in a new country where there was a gap in development of 25 years, 
post-colonialism with the Indonesian occupation, there was a need to build capacity and make sure that people locally could appreciate and understand the interesting natural treasures they were holding. Now, of course, most of you know where, where Dili is. This is the capital of East Timor. Um, this is just a little bit of uh, a, a map approach because you can see that for a lot of these places, high diversity is known. So if you consider Borneo, fourth largest island in the world, some of the highest diversity of amphibians, reptiles, and really of anything anywhere on the globe, surrounded by all these other interesting islands. And then here's this little one right on the outskirts, and you think, well, there ought to be some diversity on this island because it's just right there. It's on that side of Wallachia. It's so close to some of these areas that have so much known diversity. Well, one of the big problems, of course, and we just discussed this as we were outside, is that it is far, far away. And it's not only far away, certainly from the Western world, it's also quite expensive to get to. And so it's only a, an hour and a bit flight from Darwin in Australia, but that's you know, still a distance to cover. And so my solution was always in the spirit of introducing my students to something new, is to take a few extra days to get there. New cultures, the, the excitement of being somewhere new is going to certainly help with, um, with jet lag. We had a quick way of introducing a team spirit to the group, and we can, of course, give people more bang for their buck. But the, thing, the key thing for me is that for all participants, it turned the research course, and I ran these as classes, to the trip of a lifetime. And that is what's going to be memorable. So if you travel, I think in many cases, having a trip of a lifetime is really going to have a big impact on you. And that's what I was trying to give my students. And so we stopped in places that most of you know, Singapore and Bali, Kuala Lumpur, Brunei. How many of you have been to Brunei? Anybody? So a few. Great place, really. There's a lot of gold where you go, but because of the forest is where you should go. They've got some great canopy walks. And then, of course, other parts of Borneo, where you have a lot of diversity. And there is your first snake, just to give you a little bit of an introduction. Now, of course, the second challenge is if you bring students from California, and my college is in an area called the High Desert, you bring them to the rainforest, they know nothing. It's a desert environment, and you take them straight to the rainforest. And I do this little trick to really get the adrenaline going. We step off the airplane, and within four hours, we do a night walk in the jungle. That's a little daunting for some, but it's so exciting. <clears throat> and so you look up, and of course, you see how the trees are growing together. Uh, you see lots of interesting critters of all kinds of uh, persuasions. And of course, you, you, they find you if you don't find them. And so you leave a little bit of uh, a payment to the jungle, but ultimately, it's all worth it. The other uh, kinds of things to, to understand is that, that even though this is a small place, it is not so easy to get around in it. Um, first of all, you have roads that are really starting to shape up much better. 
but they're not necessarily always so good. And as you'll see a little bit later, there's some very interesting opportunities for river crossings and so on. And, and you also have some distinct areas. So Delhi is the capital. It's roughly in the, the north central area. There is an island to the north, a tower island. There is an island right at the, the very um, easternmost tip called Jaco. And then there is this funny little exclave called Ukusi. And if you want to visit all of these, the logistics are quite daunting. This is not an easy place, still isn't such an easy place to visit. But we managed to go to all the places, all the municipalities, all the islands in this research work. And when you do that, you see that there are some really interesting differences that would make you expect high diversity because the northern area is one of the driest in all of Southeast Asia because it has a rain shadow of this large ridge that ranges across the center of the island and it goes all the way up to 3,000 meters in elevation. So that's, that's a pretty big rain shadow, especially when you have Australia to the south and the, the ons, onshore current is basically making the rain stay in the south. And so as a consequence, a lot of the things that you see in the north are relatively dry. That's one of the largest rivers, and you can see at that time of the year there's hardly any water in it. In addition, as you go farther to the south, these are now some of the places that do have rivers, and you'll see that this is closer to the south coast. And of course, there are always mountains. This is a view of the island, Atauro, which itself sticks out to a thousand meters and has some beautiful rainforest right at the top. Rice terraces, of course, are uh, in many places, and they're great habitats for different frogs and for pit vipers. Uh, we have the highest mountain, Mount Ramalau, which has zero amphibians or reptiles. It's just a little too cold. It never quite gets to freezing, but it goes down to two degrees Celsius. But that's about it. That's a, as cold as you can get in this area. And then as you move along the mountain chain, you can see Mount Mundo Perdido. So the mountains aren't as high up there. And Mundo Perdido, of course, that's the lost world. Because literally, this is one place where very few people are able to go. The third challenge then is getting around. And so you do everything, pretty much. You, you charter the little boats, you get on the fishing boats, you have vehicles that are worthy to travel. And we always travel with two, because if you travel with one, you can get stuck for days, because there are places where nobody goes. And so let me see if I can make this work. This is a little river crossing. Do I have sound? Don't think I have sound in this. There is a lot of uh, splashing and whooping going on in the, in the background. Um, and uh, we did have a second river that we almost lost a vehicle in after a strong rain. But other than that, these are very reliable troopers. 
The fourth challenge is how do you actually do research in a place like this? I mean, obviously there aren't any facilities. You can't always go back to a lab and a university. And so you have to carry everything with you. So we build our makeshift labs wherever we go. We have everything we need to um, extract DNA samples, to preserve specimens, and uh, we, we have our tables for the setup. We have Mark, who is usually our master photographer, and so we, we build a flow into this. So first we have him take the photos, and then we deliver the specimens to the place where they uh, can be properly handled and preserved. And ultimately, it makes for a really good collection. And then, of course, you have to find the right people. So one of the things that I always wanted to make sure is that we had a lot of local buy-in. We wanted to make sure we had local students. And one of the things that happens in Southeast Asia, and I'm sure it's the same all over the world, if people realize you are serious and you are actually doing what you said you were going to do, then things will work out and yes, we'll have you meet with the president. Okay. So he was the president, this is interesting, he was the president then and he is the president again with a 10 year gap uh, and he's still very interested in this research. Now, once you're out there, there are a lot of interesting things you can do. So of course, open air teaching, this is field work, but this is also training. We have students from all over the place, including local students who don't really know what the things are that they live with. So people in some places don't necessarily go into the forest by night. And so they don't actually know what's out there. And so we can, we can train and we can teach a little bit. Um, of course, dealing with venomous snakes is very important. And in particular, one of the concerns wherever we go is, is there a problem with snake bite? And in most places, there is a problem with snake bite, not necessarily with these vipers. Most people, if you get bitten by a viper like this, it's going to be painful and it's really not so problematic. But it turns out that there are sometimes uh, problems with an individual's genetics where they're less resistant to fight off something like this and there have been fatalities from these little pit vipers. But anyway, the, the teaching works really well because we have a, a lot of interesting things to go and show. And uh, I have uh, been asked to advise the, the local government on some of the things we do so that they can work with, uh, with their guards, the forest guards, to have a better understanding of the kind of things that need to be done. And ultimately it's learning by doing. So we invite the local people to look and see what we're doing in order to understand the environment. You're listening to Mind Matters. We just heard from Professor Heinrich Kaiser about his fantastic experience traveling through East Timor. In this next segment, he'll tell us about the different kinds of snakes he saw in the nation as his team discovered new species and worked to build educational opportunities there. All right, on to snakes. 
And we're starting small. And of course, this is the airport uh, in Dili. And we were invited to give a snake talk to the people who were dealing with the fuel of the aircraft. Because when they were dealing with the, the, the equipment and so on, now and again, a snake would pop out from among the equipment, which was disconcerting to them. And the supervisor wanted them to be calm and understand about the snakes. And so we came and on the last day of our last day of our last expedition, went there and um, while Mark O'Shea gave a talk to the, the people who needed to hear about snake, snakes, my students and I went rummaging just because I've never been on an international airport trying to find amphibians and reptiles. I mean, it's just, just a cool thing, right? And so what did we find? Well, we found a different species of uh, what we call a worm snake, which is a form of a blind snake, but it's very, very small and very wiggly. So the whole thing is no longer than 20 centimeters. And so if you look at the, this is the head, and look at where it goes. It goes into the palm bark and out the other side, and that's 20 centimeters. So you can see that it's very, very thin on top of everything. It's only about two millimeters wide. So that's why it's called a worm snake, because if you're not paying attention, you would easily mistake it for a worm. And it existed in amongst an ant nest that I uncovered. And when you're looking for a snake in an ant nest, at some point you have to grab the snake. And that's so good. It's, a, it's an experience for sure, but we recently published this as the anteater under the airport. And this was literally just out a week ago. So it's free for download at the Canadian Journal of Zoology. Now, there, of course, there's more. There's always more, it seems, in, in East Timor. We have blind snakes. Yes, this is the common one. You have this one here. This is just the flower pot snake. Very common species, very... Uh, very small, but you know, not really so noteworthy. But then you have larger ones. And so these are blind snakes that are about a foot long and much thicker. And it, one was known from historical examinations, but there are others, two new species of these blind snakes. And of course, because they're fossorial, which means they live in the ground, you don't see them very much. They sometimes come out when it rains but then you have to have people there who are actually looking to make sure they don't understand, they don't think it's a worm. And so this is why we need people to be trained to find this. So uh, a diversity of blind snakes, unexpected diversity of blind snakes. <clears throat> this is a pipe snake. This pipe snake is uh, Cylindrophus boulangerai, named after the herpetologist of the British Museum, Georges Boulanger. And this is uh, an interesting one because when we first heard about this for Timor-Leste, it was called a two-headed snake because this is the tail and this is the head. And it looks a little bit like the tail could be the head. And the snake will actually wave its colorful tail when it feels threatened to attract a predator's bite there. And then it can move away the other direction. And so this is a, 
uh, uh, an interesting adaptation on these pipe snakes. But they're called pipe snakes because basically throughout the length of the body they're roughly the same thickness except for at the ends. Pythons, there's a series of uh, pythons there. Of course we have, first of all, the, the water python. This is Lyasis. And these water pythons exist in uh, areas where there's lots of water. So rice paddies are great. But because the rice paddies and the places, the roads in between, um, provide barriers for these snakes, you'll find that a lot of them get run over. And so we have lots of samples of snakes that unfortunately don't make it across the road. Even though people don't necessarily mind these snakes, I mean, when it's vipers, sometimes people just want to chop them up, but these ones actually will um, really keep down the rodent population uh, around people's houses. Um, but unfortunately, they do end up dead on the road quite a bit. This was the snake with the highest road kill rate that we saw. We do have reticulated pythons, and there is one skull of a reticulated pythons that is roughly the size of a human skull. And that's probably a snake that's maybe 25 feet long. So that's a big python. And one of the reasons why you don't find so many pythons of that size in Timor-Leste anymore is because when the Indonesian occupation happened, there was no food. And big snakes are good to eat, and they, they would keep people alive. So it's unfortunate that that happened, but we found mostly younger specimens like this one. We do have five uh, species of colubrid snakes as well. So these are now the, the harmless snakes, uh, normal snakes, regular snakes, if you will including racers. So this is the lesser Sunda racer, and it does have a, a little bit of a racing stripe anyway. Um, also very common all across the island. And the tree snakes. Now the racers tend to be more nocturnal. The tree snakes tend to be diurnal, so during the night versus during the day. And these are very, very fast. So once you see one and it starts to move, it's gone. And they will literally disappear in, in the grassy areas and you can't see them anymore. Um, we think that this is actually its own species. So currently it is recognized at the subspecies level, but some of my colleagues are working on this. So one more point for the diversity of Timor-Leste. We have two types of wolf snakes. One of these is interesting because sometimes you get reports of crates. And if you've ever looked through the literature and you're interested in snakes, you know that crates have these bands of various types. They could be white bands, they could be reddish, they could be grayish. There are all kinds of bands involved with crates. And it crates, of course, are venomous, and so you don't want to get bitten by a crate. But this species, Lycodon subsectus, has the same scale pattern as a venomous snake. It is lacking a l'oreal scale. In many cases, one simple look at the head of a snake, if you can get close enough, will tell you if it's a venomous species or not, because it doesn't have that one extra scale 
between the, the nostril, which is in orange here, and the eye. So this is the only scale in blue. If there's only one, then it's supposed to be venomous. Except that in this case, these are not venomous because these are just wolf snakes. Very easy to confuse, but when in some places you hear reports of crates, especially in island countries where you really wonder whether there should be any, that is the reason. And so uh, it's a really perfect mimic of a small crate. This is a, a ground snake which we discovered completely out of place. Ground snakes are odd. Their center of diversity is New Guinea. And here we are quite a distance away from New Guinea. Um, the next closest one is uh, on Flores Island, but beyond that there's just very little in the island world of Indonesia. There is a species, uh, there are two species on Borneo, but this one came um, because we were looking at a, the, one of the, the few moist forests in Timor-Leste. It's moist meaning that it's on, on the good side of the rain shadow, so you, it does get quite a bit of rain. And it floods a little bit, it gets muddy a little bit, and that's where these snakes live. This is a sort of standard habitat for them. And um, we asked the president at the time what we should name it, and he proposed this named Nankora, which is the, the region, and he's hoping to establish that as a nature reserve. Hopefully the new species was described two years ago will help with that. And then we have a series of water snakes, which are also quite common in Southeast Asia. Whenever you have plains where there's water, mangrove areas, or when you have rice paddies, you'll find different kinds of snakes like these. Mangrove snakes, this would be pretty much what you see there. And then you have uh, specialists, crab-eating snakes. So those, those are the kind of things that will actually go into the burrows and try and find the freshly molted crabs because that's the easiest way to eat them. And, I mean, this is where you see it's right next to one of the, the uh, the burrows of one of these crabs right in the mangroves. Very inaccessible area. We also have sea crates, and sea crates, of course, are, exist throughout the, the Western Pacific and, and uh, in the island worlds, and um, they are highly venomous, but they're very placid. And one of the things that you can do is literally play with them a little bit, and uh, this is one of my students releasing one of these snakes, and I just want to point out it, it does not have one of these scales either, so you can tell that. But the interesting thing is its morphology, and this is the ocean, and it will go right back into the ocean, and if you notice, the back end of it is flat. So it has a tail that acts like a very nice rudder. And these tend to eat eels. And they eat the eel in the ocean, and they come back on land to sit and digest it. So this is a species that goes back and forth and back and forth between the ocean and land. And then, of course, we have the, the pit vipers. And these are stunning animals. They're not necessarily large in size, and they, they don't really sit in the trees like you might expect with pit vipers locally or in 
many places in Southeast Asia, um, there aren't that many trees that these species, this, the species would like to, to uh, climb on. And we find that they are almost entirely terrestrial, which is an unusual adaptation. But the yellow form and the green form are genetically identical, so it's just a little color quirk. So as far as the, the genes we know to analyze, there is no difference between them. And this species is the, the island pit viper. That was Professor Heinrich Kaiser from Victor Valley College. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. Thank you.